Sometimes the Bible asks questions in order to answer. Not every question the Bible asks is answered immediately. Sometimes there are just rhetorical questions. There are times the Bible asks questions and then answers them for us. Psalm 15 does this. And this technique of asking a question in order to answer it, you know, it reminds me of the value of catechisms. The word catechism comes from the root idea of to instruct. And it's helping people through questions and answers about God and God's world and God's word and the person and work of Jesus and salvation and what is to come as the hope of the Christian. Questions about these things are good because they help instruct us. And questions in which there are answers. We think about God and His revelation. I'm helped by many different questions and answers in the theological documents in church history that have served believers. Think of the opening question to the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, the answer says, but belong body and soul both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And there's the opening question to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end, the answer says, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The Baptist Catechism associated with Benjamin Keach opens this way. Who is the first and chiefest being? Answer, God is the first and chiefest being. It's good to have questions and answers. It's good to have questions that make you think about the Lord, about His Word and salvation, about the future, and about what it means to live for Christ. We need those kinds of questions. It's one of the reasons I find Psalm 15 so helpful. It asks what it answers. The question is asked in verse 1, and the rest of the psalm, nearly all of it I should clarify, is answering that question. We could see the psalm dividing nicely into three parts. There's the question, two parts, in verse 1. And then the answer from verses 2 through almost all of verse 5. But the answer is followed by a third part to the psalm. The very last line, He who does these things shall never be moved. That's not as much an answer to the question as it is a promise. So there's a question in two parts. An answer from verses 2 through almost all of 5. And then thirdly, the promise. The last line of the psalm. In light of the question, in light of the answer, what is the promise for one who heeds these words? This question is addressed to the Lord. Don't you see it in verse 1? O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Sometimes David will ask himself a question or other psalmists like the psalmist of Psalm 42. Why are you downcast, O my soul? There are times where the psalms will address either the psalmist rhetorically or perhaps something that he would want more widely known, the enemies of Yahweh who should fear the coming judgment, a question they should consider. This question in verse 1 is addressed to Yahweh. O Lord... Who shall sojourn in your tent? And to sojourn means to to travel, to be on the route toward, to pilgrimage toward. To sojourn in the tent of Yahweh is very specifically a reference to the Old Testament sanctuary. And the second line, I think, helps bring that out. Who shall dwell on your holy hill? 
Because you see, the hill of Jerusalem, the elevated region, became the place set apart for the worship of Yahweh. The tabernacle Ark of the Covenant was brought there by David. And the temple would later be built by David's son, Solomon. But already in the days of David, the author of this psalm, that is, David, he is asking this question, already knowing of the importance of approaching Yahweh at his appointed place for worship. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? So I think this tent and holy hill language is meant to convey the sanctuary of, in Jerusalem. The place where people would approach in this city to fulfill the various feasts throughout the calendar year of Israel. After all, when Passover comes around, when Tabernacles comes around, where do these Israelites outside of Jerusalem go? They go to God's holy hill. That's the answer. They travel there. They sojourn there. The question, O Lord, who shall sojourn? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? We see that this question is setting up the answer. What kind of person, Yahweh, what kind of person dwells in your presence? This psalm is meant to instruct people with the answer to this question about those who come to dwell with God. It is the case that sojourning doesn't have to be followed by dwelling in. You could sojourn through and just just keep going. You're just there temporarily. You're not exactly there to dwell. In fact, this was the case for those making pilgrimages to Jerusalem. They were sojourning there, but they weren't exactly going there to dwell. I mean, they had to go back home and they were going to wait for the next festival. And then they would sojourn to the holy hill once more. Which is why I think these questions taken together, this two-part question about sojourning and dwelling, is about something more than just keeping the festivals. It's about something more than just approaching the physical city or the place of God's sanctuary, already represented by the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem, and later certainly confirmed by the temple built by Solomon and his administration. This seems to be a question about who shall come and dwell and live before God. That's the question. Sojourning, in other words, making the pilgrimage, but that coming to dwell with God is the goal. It's not a means to some greater end. That's the greater end. That is the goal. That who shall come to sojourn and dwell at your holy hill? Who shall come before you, God, and stay? Who shall come that their life be lived before your presence? Who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? This is a question about approaching and communing with the Lord. Communing with the Lord. People who come to know God and live for the glory of God. The value of this question in verse 1 is that it's basically the question of the whole Bible, if you think about it from one perspective. What's the storyline of the scripture leading us to say outside of Eden in a Genesis 3 world? Lord, who's going to sojourn to your tent and dwell on your holy hill? Who can do that? What sort of person and what does it look like? And 
this and this question is the question of the Bible. It's like a banner flying over the whole storyline of God's word. So suddenly this question takes an important role, not just for this psalm, but that this would be a kind of instinctual question we would want to ask for ourselves. Well, Lord, I might not be David, but I need to ask this question. And I need to know if there's an answer to this question, what's this answer? In the immediate context of the psalm, I think we're to imagine a pilgrimage, as I said. They go to the gates of Jerusalem. They're to approach the sanctuary of God. And yet, this bigger question, what kind of people live in God's presence, is the point, as one writer put it. We should ask this opening question because, you know, we just looked at Psalm 14 last week. And and it's a fruitful exercise to, to look at how one psalm and the one before or after it seem to have a, a kind of coherence to it. And in Psalm 14, we were told, well, all have turned aside and together have become corrupt. And there is none who does good, not even one. And with that evaluation spiritually of mankind in Psalm 14... Asking Psalm 15.1 is altogether appropriate. So Lord, Yahweh, who can dwell in your holy tent? Given what we know. And then we might not find the answer to be so comforting. Because having been told in Psalm 14 by David. That uh, evildoers are eating up my people. People have turned aside and no one is doing good. They're committed to evil. There are no who, none who understand and who seek after God. Instead in their corruption they commit abominable deeds. And the answer in Psalm 15 too, To who can dwell with the Lord. It turns out to be someone who does what is good. And who is blameless and not corrupt. Looking at Psalm 14, alongside Psalm 15, it has an arresting effect upon us spiritually. We say, well, Lord, if this is what we are like, apart from the intervention of God's rescuing grace in Psalm 14, if we are those corrupted and astray, then in our right minds and in our hearts, we are not those seeking after God Longing to sojourn in your tent as we ought to and dwelling on your holy hill. The the last verse of Psalm 14 was this. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. What is Zion? It's the Old Testament reference to Jerusalem. Oh, that salvation would come out of Zion. What's the next verse now? Moving into Psalm 15. Oh, Lord, who shall sojourn in your holy tent and dwell on your holy hill? What's that a reference to? Zion. Zion. There's this connection I think we should notice conceptually then between Psalm 14 and Psalm 15. Who are those who can dwell before God? Especially if we know what the human dilemma is in such a graphic way that Psalm 14 portrays. The answer to these questions, Psalm 15 verse 2 through the first part of verse 5. And the answer is given in 12 brief expressions. 12 brief expressions. So rather than having a 12-part sermon series, what we're just going to do is looking at all 12 of these at once. 12 expressions. First, he who walks blamelessly. He who walks blamelessly. This is a reference to one's walk or path of living. 
Someone's life could be characterized with a metaphor in Proverbs and Psalms and elsewhere as the, the walk that you have. So someone whose walk is blameless, it's someone whose life is marked by what? Obedience. They don't have behavior that is blameworthy in terms of wickedness. Instead, the, the walk or the metaphor for their life, they're committed to the Lord. They're devoted to Him, like on purpose. Like they're, they're wanting to pursue a knowledge of God and glorify God. That's what they want. They seek after God. Their walk is blameless. They have a consistent dedication to the Lord. The Lord is not like a hobby to them. You know, the kingdom of God and the things of the gospel. This is not something of peripheral interest. This is the heartbeat, the center of their life. This is what animates them. It is what they live for and live in light of. They walk blamelessly before God. In other words, not a life committed to a life apart from God, but to walking before God marked by obedience to God. And this language of blameless has the picture of being free of blemish, to be whole, to be entire and not stripped and torn, to be integral. It's where we get the idea of integrity. Integrity. Something that is of one piece. That the life that you live, that you live in front of your friends, that you live when you're alone, that you live when you're at church, the life that you live is integral, it's whole. That you're, you are who you are wherever you are. Uh, you're not one person here and one person there projecting this and conforming to that. Your life is lived before God. And that's what you want, to walk blamelessly. The second expression, this is a person who does what is right. Well, we recognize here that these expressions are not altogether distinct in perfect compartmentalized categories. Doing what is right, that connects to expression number one, doesn't it? It's like the first. If their walk is blameless, then what are their deeds committed to? Well, they have options before them. They face temptations in this life. There are others who do wickedness. They can face the same things as the Psalm 1 person where the mockers offer their seat. Come sit with the mockers. Come stand with the path of the sinners. Come take the counsel of the wicked. But this person does what is right. When they have the option to do what would be dishonoring to God, they don't want to turn against the Lord. They don't want their life to be lived astray. They want to do what is right. The choices they make correspond to what is, what is just, what is righteous. Thirdly, this person speaks truth in his heart. And this is important lest we think he's simply focused on what's on the outside. Oh, so is this writer saying the answer to this question are those who just outwardly seem to have things together? No, he's talking about here in this third expression, a work in a major way that's happened in the heart. Truth is present there. Counsel of God is present there. It is influencing the heart. Speaking truth to the heart. In the heart. And truth here in the Psalms and in Proverbs. These wisdom texts guarantee that this is not relative truth. Your truth. My truth. Someone else's truth. This is the truth of what God is like. And what he's made known in his word. And therefore when David the psalmist talks about speaking truth in his heart. It's like the blessed man of Psalm 1. On his law, he meditates day and night. 
So what is it that he speaks to his heart? The truth that he's meditating upon in the word of God. The God he's come to know. The God who's revealed himself in Holy Scripture. The person who longs to sojourn and dwell in the tent of God is one who, in whose heart the word of God has done a great work. This is why the person does what is right and why that person walks blamelessly. Because in the heart, truth is being internalized. We're internalizing things all the time. We live out our deepest convictions and delights. And the difficulty in our sinful world is we are surrounded by all sorts of falsehoods and half-truths which are no truths at all. And that as those are internalized, that will lead to living on the outside certain deeds and walks of life. We would be deviating from the knowledge and ways of God. What does this person need in his heart? Well, David needs what we all need. To grow in wisdom from the word of God that our deeds and walk in life would be conformed to the Holy Scriptures. This person would therefore cultivate a life of integrity. You want to live a life of integrity? Then be a person of the word of God. You want to live life of a holistic, you're one person wherever you are pursuing the things of God? Then know God in his word. Meditate on the word of God. Delight in the truth of God. Speak truth in the heart. Fourthly, verse 3, this person is one who does not slander with his tongue. Ah, you see, the tongue and the heart are connected. I know it doesn't look that way on a a medical chart of showing the muscles and bones of the body, but the heart and the tongue are more connected than you realize. Because it's what comes out of the heart that proceeds from the mouth. And of course, we mean here in a spiritual case. This person doesn't slander with his tongue. What is it that reigns in the wicked tongue that is between our teeth? What reigns in the tongue for this person is the truth of the word of God in the heart that affects what comes out of the mouth. So this fourth expression, this person is one who does not slander with his tongue. It means he's committed to the truth. Truth has influenced him at such a deep level. The truth of God addressing and and convicting and persuading his heart that he is now committed to speaking what is true as well. He doesn't want his tongue characterized by slander, by lies, by falsehood. So he doesn't slander with his tongue because he speaks truth to his heart. The fifth expression, he does no evil to his neighbor. This could be broad, you know, a broad idea of doing what is evil. It may also connect to the immediate expression right before it. Isn't it the case that when you slander with your tongue your neighbor, you're doing evil to your neighbor? Indeed you are. So perhaps the fourth and fifth and even the sixth expressions all belong together. We don't do evil to our neighbor when truth is influencing the heart. When we are wanting to speak for the glory of God. We want to restrain our tongue and exercise self-control and not do evil to neighbor. Not only is this an expression we should uh, see in light of this psalm. We should see this expression in light of love your neighbor as yourself in Leviticus 19. We are called to actively love our neighbor and to refrain from doing evil toward our neighbor. So so there's both an important positive and negative idea of treatment toward neighbor. Loving our neighbor and refraining from evil. And that includes evil speech. 
Well, this is so the case in this world, and social media has just made everything worse in this way, because it is the easiest thing in the world to see when millions of people interconnected through all these different platforms and social networks for slander and gossip and backbiting and reviling to simply be what you notice. We have exacerbated dangers and temptations around us. Opportunities where with our tongues directly or with our fingertips digitally can do evil toward neighbor. He says here, this person is one who does not do evil to his neighbor. Nor, sixthly, sixth, this person does not take up a reproach against his friend. This is a kind of neighbor. Obviously, we have plenty of neighbors where we don't have close relationships in our lives. We might not consider them friends as much as we might maybe acquaintances. And yet here, he says, not doing evil against your neighbor even includes those in your closest proximity, those you would call your friend. You're not taking up a reproach against them. And it means to revile them with your words, to, to, uh, to raise up a slur against them, against their character and reputation. This doesn't mean we don't bring good and wise correction alongside others in our lives as we all seek to grow in wisdom together. That's not what this verse is prohibiting. This idea of taking up a reproach means to do something that is sinful here with our words. So the fourth, fifth, and sixth expressions, slandering with the tongue, doing evil against neighbor, and taking up a reproach, the person who dwells in the tent of Yahweh doesn't do those things. Instead... Relationships matter to this person. Loving God and loving neighbor means not only am I trying to commune with the Lord and believe his word and internalize the wisdom of scripture. I'm wanting to maintain healthy relationships that I don't damage with my tongue. And this person recognizes that you ought to nurture your friendships and edify and build up our neighbor and our fellow image bearers rather than with our tongue being poisonous. And corrupting with our speech. We know how easy it is to do that. And we see examples of that all the time. Even on news networks it is popular. One of the most common things that is now in vogue in news networks. Is when you turn it on. They are absolutely mocking and reviling and slandering anybody who doesn't agree with them. And this is happening all over the place. These are not good examples of righteous restrained speech my friends. And yet. Indirectly, these are the sort of things that can creep into our souls to begin discipling and influencing our mind and tongue. Oh, we have to be so careful, don't we? We have to be so careful because this question in chapter 15.1 is answered in a way where looking around us in our culture, there may be fewer examples visibly and publicly to see. Here we have in the seventh expression in verse 4, this is a person... Who is, is he, he is one in whose eyes a vile person is despised. And then eighth, one who honors those who fear the Lord. So we take the seventh and eighth expressions. Someone who, who does not approve of and actually rejects what they should. And then someone who honors and esteems what they should. In other words, in a fallen world... Sinful expressions might look like this, calling evil good and calling good evil. Well, this person in Psalm 15, this person despises evil. This person hates what God hates. That if it is wicked and evil, this is a person who does not want to esteem it. 
They don't want to exalt what God will bring low by judgment. Instead, this person wants to honor what God vindicates and exalts. And God loves his people. God honors his people. He saves and vindicates and works for the good of his people. So expression seven and eight, this person is one in whose eyes a vile person is despised and one who honors those who who fear the Lord. Despising a vile person might sound like that contradicts loving your neighbor. No, this is, a, this is a strong expression to make a point. It doesn't deny loving your enemy and loving your neighbor. Or praying for your enemy and evangelizing the lost. But the opposite of despising a vile person, in this case of the psalm, would be to take this person into your confidence and counsel as a source of influence and a companionship. In other words, to side with vileness. And so to despise would be the opposite. It would be to say, that's not what I want in my soul internalizing within me to work its way out with speech and actions. Instead, I want to, I want to look at evil with the eyes of the scripture and call evil evil and call good good. Honoring those who fear the Lord is a way of talking about the people of God. This means those who dwell with God will nurture a view toward the people of God that the Bible talks about. What is our view toward those who claim the name of Christ? Those who fear the Lord, those who seek to grow wise. Do we esteem and honor them? Do we long for their influence and companionship? Do we want to come alongside them for friendship and encouragement? Honoring those who fear the Lord seems that that would be the case. Number nine. This person is one who swears to his own hurt. Swears to his own hurt. I think it's imagining a court context initially. Though I don't think it has to be limited to that. Where you are swearing an oath that you not commit perjury, but that you are telling the truth. Swearing to his own hurt means how committed is this person to the truth? This person is so committed to the truth, they're committed to the truth even if it's not in their own immediate personal advantage. Because we could find ourselves in situations, in relationships, and in certain contexts where bending the truth or ignoring the truth altogether would bring short-term relief and gratification or deliverance in some way. But this person, in verse 4, swears to his own hurt. That means he's committed to the truth because of his love for God, no matter what the consequences will be. That's what it means to swear to his own hurt. It means I'm not going to try to manage the fallout. I'm simply going to speak and tell and be committed to the truth. And I'm going to trust God with all of that. I'm just going to trust the Lord and with the truth that's speaking to my heart with expression number three, I'm going to, with my words and with my actions, be committed to what is right. And if circumstances arise where it looks like a commitment to the truth is going to cost me something, then I will swear to the truth even to my own hurt. That's commitment. And I think the tenth expression goes along with that. This This is a person who does not change. This goes along with the ninth expression, swears to his own hurt and does not change. This is an unwavering, unfaltering commitment to performing what you swear, the oath of truth, not wavering in view of political and social pressures that in your opportunities to speak from your mouth, what you say to be the case that the Lord knows and you know that it is indeed the case. 
Nine and ten then, one who swears to his own hurt and does not change, go together. Eleven and twelve, verse five here. Eleven, one who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. Expression number 11 here is about the practice of usury, U-S-U-R-Y. Usury. It's the practice of lending money in a way where you are trying to exploit the situation that brought about the need. In other words, if someone says, can I borrow this? And you say, like some did in the ancient world, well, I'm going to charge you 50% interest. Uh, This was one of the cases of high interest rates in the ancient world that not only would be something that would still tempt those who needed this money to say, well, short term, though, I really need this situation. Long term, it would be devastating for them. So who does not take out his money at put out his money at interest is a way of saying, I don't look at people as those I can prey upon financially. That I say, well, you know what? If we could just create this contract and this deal and uh, and I'll give you this, but here's what it's going to mean for you because you know, you know, you can get that much more from them. The reason this is brought up in verse five is because this practice of usury is not about loving neighbor. It's about loving money. It's about loving money at the expense of neighbor. Like here's someone who is in need, someone who would probably be quite poor. And they're saying here, I'm in desperate need for this particular thing. And so the the person in the the superior financial situation says, well, here's what we're going to do. And all they just see is dollar signs in their eyes. Verse 5 is telling us the practice of usury ought not to mark those who claim to know God. To prey upon others financially. That is not a holy practice. That is not love of neighbor. And we also see this financial element in the twelfth and final expression, don't we? Does not take a bribe against the innocent. In other words, this person is committed to the truth. And they might think they're committed to the truth no matter what. But then someone says, but hey, listen, if you'll say this, okay? If you're in this situation and if you tell them the following, we'll give you this. Well, that's a bribe. That is, that is an effort to purchase what you want said that has nothing to do with your commitment to the truth. And that again would be the appeal of money, that greedy temptation at work within your heart. He says here, this person in this 12th expression does not take a bribe against the innocent. They, they know their testimony can't be bought. Their testimony can't be manipulated. They're going to speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Because they love God. And they love their neighbor. And they're going to trust God with the consequences. They will swear to their own hurt. And no amount of money is going to purchase their commitment to the truth. I think these 12 expressions cover a variety of different elements of life. Right? Covers our speech. Covers our dealings with money. Covers our view toward people who know the Lord. Covers how we treat our neighbor. It starts to get into the business of our life. The way that our words and actions and our convictions and commitments bear themselves out over time. You know what I think chapter 15 is trying to say in the gist of it if you boil it down? What are those who dwell in God's tent and who shall dwell on His holy hill? I think verses 2 through 5 have about 12 expressions to say it this way. Those who are committed to the Lordship of God in all of life. They're committed to His Lordship. 
They're not interested in trying to be some independent, moral, autonomous creature where they're calling the shots in this realm and they're giving God this 20% over here of their life. They're trying to bring all that they are to God. They're coming before God while all of their mess and all of their fractured hearts and all of their sinful deeds and all of their carried over shame. And they're saying to God, Lord, you have to do a work in all that I am. Because I want to dwell with you, God, so leave nothing untouched. My heart, my speech, my treatment of neighbor, my view of money, my view of your people. Lord, by your word, do such a work that leaves nothing untouched. So chapter 15 here is viewing a life as a whole. It's viewing a life committed to the lordship of God in heaven and earth. And the promise is, he who does these things shall never be moved. Meaning that the long-term gain of commitment to Christ and his lordship over all of life is a kind of unshakableness of soul that outlasts all the corruption, suffering, and death of this age. That our future is based on what our present life is rooted in, the unshakable Christ. Why is it that this person shall never be moved? Because this person has a life rooted in knowing and following God. And that's not some small thing. That's not some light Trivial thing. This is the most important thing. This is of what is eternal in consequence. And this person shall not be moved. I think we can imply that instability of life is something that sinners accomplish in their faulty speech, in their shameful deeds, in their dishonest words, in their maltreatment of neighbor. Those who live sinfully, in their words and actions toward neighbor. What are they cultivating? They are cultivating an unstable life. That's what they're cultivating. You want to live in a way where God is your refuge. And you are on the firmness of his truth and promises. Then friend, look to God as our refuge. Your refuge. And learn of his word to be those whose hearts long for these kinds of things. In these 12 expressions. We can still feel though I think. How we fall short of this. Even if we say, well, there are times where I know that I'm treating my neighbor well and I'm trying to restrain my speech. But if I, if I looked at chapter 15, verses 2 through the first part of 5, and if these 12 expressions are saying, this person must have a spotless record on these things, well, then I fall into the Psalm 14 category and not the Psalm 15 category. You know, there is this, uh, this effort that Old Testament scholars have, uh, have made over the years to look at different structural sections of the Psalms that prove very fruitful to notice. And there's such a one with Psalm 15 and the Psalms that follow. I want to show you something in Psalm 15 and Psalm 24. Psalm 15 begins a section of Psalms that conclude with Psalm 24. Psalms 15 through 24 are a unit. And what's interesting about Psalm 15 is the same kinds of questions asked in Psalm 24. So Psalm 24 says in verse 3, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in His holy place? That's a similar kind of question, isn't it, from Psalm 15. And then there's an interesting answer in Psalm 24. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, 
It doesn't lift up his soul to what's false. doesn't swear deceitfully. In other words, what are the answers given there? Some of the same kinds of answers from Psalm 15. But the focus on the one in Psalm 24 is worth noting. Who is it who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord and shall stand in his holy place with a heart and life of blamelessness? Look in verse 7. Psalm 24, 7 says, Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. In other words, who's coming into the holy place to ascend and dwell? The King. The King of glory. The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And when New Testament interpreters rightly see that Jesus Christ fulfills Psalm 24, that He is the one who has ascended to the holy place, that He is the one who is the Lord mighty and strong in battle, who has been vindicated and in all power and strength and might, is the one of heart and life, fitting the description of Psalm 24. When we read Psalm 15 and Psalm 24 together, We can answer the questions in both psalms the same way. So Psalm 24 is going to help us with Psalm 15. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? In Psalm 24, the King, the Messiah. How do we know that? Because we're later in the psalms, all the way past Psalm 2. And in Psalm chapter 2, here's what we're told in Psalm 2 verse 6. God says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Psalm 2 verse 6. This language isn't coming out of nowhere in Psalm 15. Who is installed on the holy hill of God and who shall ascend to his holy place? And the answer in the Psalms is the king from the line of David. That's who. The Messiah. The promised king whose heart and life is righteous and blameless. So who shall dwell on your holy hill in Psalm 15? Well, as one writer put it in Psalm, about Psalm 15, only one man has ever fulfilled this psalm. In Psalm 15, we ask the question and we must answer it. Who shall sojourn in your tent and who shall dwell on your holy hill? When you look at the answers there, you realize this is ultimately ref- referring to the Messiah. This is the king from the line of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is true for him that he shall never be moved. The Lord Jesus is in no danger of being overthrown from the outside or corrupted from the inside. He has an unshakable administration, a kingdom that shall never end because it is eternal, because he is everlasting to everlasting, alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. But... Look in Psalm 16, verse 1, what comes right after this. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. In verse 9, therefore my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh dwells secure. I think we can answer the questions even a little more fully. Who shall sojourn in your tent and who shall dwell on your holy hill? The Lord Jesus Christ and everyone found in Him. That's who. Everyone in Christ whose refuge is the Lord. Preserve me, O God, for in You I take refuge. How is it that we shall be unshakable? 
How is it that we shall live lives immovable and be raised from the dead unto unto glory forevermore? Not because, left to ourselves, our hearts look like Psalm 15. Our hearts look like Psalm 14. But Jesus' heart looks like Psalm 15. So this means the Lord Jesus secures for us and is the refuge for sinners who know Psalm 14 is true for them apart from God's grace. And so we say, preserve me, O God, for what have I done? I have taken my refuge in you. Who shall dwell in your tent and on your holy hill? The Lord Jesus Christ and all who are found in him. Let's pray together.